it's great to have people that serve with their gifts and bless us and lead us in so many different ways. Uh, my name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. Steph, our lead pastor, has just started his sabbatical recently. Uh, a number of our staff and board members are taking on some extra responsibilities, and, uh, and we're praying that God keeps blessing us and is at work in our lives in the midst of all these things. Now, we're in the second sermon of a series called Mine, looking at stewarding our lives. And last week, we took a look at some scriptures that spoke to us about how God loves us. And that portion of scripture that says this, Do not fear, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. And, and that's our beginning place when we take a look at stewarding and what we do with our lives and the things that God puts in our hands. That's our beginning place. In fact, if we don't begin there, and if that's a part that you don't really grasp and make part of your life, then what we talk about over the next number of weeks can feel somewhat manipulative or can, it, it can seem legalistic or it seems like we're trying to emotionally coerce you into doing something with your life, with your, with your money, with your time, things that maybe you're not really willing to do. But because we begin first with Jesus' claim on our life, because he created us, because he cares for us, because he purchased us with his own lifeblood, and because for those of us who embrace that gift, he also indwells us. That's where we begin. And C.S. Lewis kind of sums it up in mere Christianity by saying this, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving uh, your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. And that kind of sums up how we look at our lives. He gives us our breath, our ability to have knowledge and consciousness, our ability to feel and think and earn a living, our health, our ambition, our business acumen, our ability to have families and enjoy them. That all comes from our Heavenly Father. Now, as a pastor, I get asked some unusual questions sometimes. And I get placed in unusual situations. But sometimes I get asked questions like this. So which Bible translation is the one that Jesus wrote? Now, some of you think that's funny. Some of you go, wait, actually, I want to know that one. And the, unfortunate, and the thing is, is that the scriptures were written anywhere from around 2,000 years ago, and it stretches out to about 4,000 years when there was no English. And the scriptures come to us written in ancient Hebrew and Aramaic and a and a really ancient form of Greek. And all the Bible translations are efforts to take the, the words of Scripture from those languages 
and interpret them into an English that we can understand. So unfortunately, you can't find the Bible that Jesus wrote. Uh, here's another question I get asked from times. Do you think we're in the last days? And the answer to that is, we don't know. The way things look sometimes, the way things are going on and the chaos that tends to, to go on, we tend to think that, oh, this has got to be the last days. How could it get worse than this? But in truth, those things are up to God. Our responsibility is to live for Jesus every day, whether I will see him today or I will see him in many years. But the thing is that I live for Jesus today because he is with me today. Here's another question that I get asked. Will my pet go to heaven? I don't know. <laughs> Here's another one. Is Trump the Antichrist? Now, we're not taking a vote on that, okay, just so you know. But uh, before we were asking questions of whether Trump is the Antichrist, then we thought Obama was, and then we thought George Bush possibly was, and Bill Clinton, and, and it goes all the way back, and it seems like since World War II, our preoccupation has been the Antichrist has to be the U.S. president. So... Uh, we don't know the answer to that also. But here's a question that I always, always have a hard time answering. Do you believe in tithing? And people always ask me that question, and it's the kind of question that you cannot just answer yes or no to, because that, the whole thing of tithing has so many layers to it and it has such a long history. And we need to understand some of that in order to be able to answer that question. So we're going to take a few moments and do a little bit of a, a look through the scriptures and the history in the scriptures so that as you wrestle with it, as you say, do I believe in tithing, then hopefully some of what we talk about this morning will help you wrestle it through. Now, the word tithe means a tenth part, or we say it's 10%. And the concept is, is that should I be giving 10% of my income to the Lord? A recent study uh, done in the U.S. says that out of North American Christians, roughly 3% of Christians tithe. Now, Another question that comes up with that is, is that, uh, so is tithe, is that tithing the on our gross or on our net? And to tell you the truth, we're not doing it anyway, so whether it's the net or the gross doesn't make any difference. Because most of us are expressing our level of faith through our giving, and if you take a look at that, sometimes we believe a lot more in our money then we believe in God's provision. Now in the Old Testament, you'll read about the tithes, and the tithe, the concept of giving 10% away starts very early in Scripture. And you see that coming out in Abraham's life and, the, and, and in a few other people's lives. But where it really takes center stage is when the nation of Israel is journeying from Egypt in a 40-year roundabout journey to the promised land, 
God begins a covenant with them. And he begins, and a covenant is this kind of a sacred agreement. He says, you will be my people, and I will be your God. You must not be like any of the nations that I'm going to put you in to displace. The nations that you're going to are pagan nations, nations who worship foreign gods, who have detestable practices, who have detestable lifestyles, ones where they abuse others and make a mockery of me, God. And I'm sending you in there, and I'm going to give you space there, but you must not be like the other nations. And the agreement that God makes, and we call it the Mosaic Covenant, not because it's an agreement with Moses, but because it was through Moses that God makes this covenant with his people. So the agreement is this. I will take you into the land... I will give you this free land, this land flowing with milk and honey, fields that you do not build, uh, sorry, uh, cities that you do not build, and fields that you did not plant. And on top of that, I will give you peace among the nations. When enemies attack you, I will protect you. When you plant crops, they will grow well. I will send the rains at the right time, and I will withhold the rains at the right time so you can get your harvest off. Everything you do as a nation will prosper. In fact, your clothes will not even wear out in the same way. I am going to bless you amazingly. Wouldn't you like to have an agreement with God like that? I mean, it sounds like the golden handshake. Basically, we can't lose. God is going to bless us and give us everything that our heart desires. But every agreement has two sides, right? God says, I will be your God. I will give you all these things. I will provide for you in all these ways. But in return, you owe me something. And in return, I require certain religious practices, certain sacrifices, certain holy days. All these things I require from you. And you will be required to give tithes. You will be required to practice circumcision. Ah, clothing requirements. Clean and unclean food. You cannot sell your land. I I mean, you can sort of sell it temporarily. It's kind of like leasing it out. But you cannot sell it out of your clan. That land must stay with you because actually this land belongs to me and I'm allowing you to live in it, but you cannot sell the land. It's forbidden. You have to purchase your firstborn back from me because I lay claim to all of your firstborn children, your firstborn flocks. Everything belongs to me, God speaking. He says, and so you have to buy them back. Otherwise, they have to be given to me in service. You have to go on pilgrimages. There are some actually some really unique and strange marriage laws that take place there. And all of this is part of the covenant that God makes with the children of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will have an arrangement with you like no other nation has. And these things are required of you. And in that requires this tithe. And the tithe is required to support the religious, uh, uh, you could say the, the religious organization and the system that they develop. Because, see, when God sent the nation in and, there's, and, and all the tribes get property, there's one tribe that gets no property. Did you know that? The tribe of Levi gets no property. Everybody else gets land, but the tribe of Levi belongs to God in a very special way. They get no land, but the tithe that comes from everyone else goes to providing for the Levites and the priests and their service within the temple. And all those finances go to up upholding the temple and the religious system and the different things that must be done. So all these things kind of blend together in a cohesive system as well as the Sabbath and the one in seven rule. One in seven days belongs to God. You cannot work on that day. That's my day. And one in seven years belongs to me. You cannot work in one in seven years. And one in seven, seven years belongs to me, the year of Jubilee. And everything belongs to me. And all debts are canceled. And if you bought land from someone else, it goes back to them. See, it's, it's part of this system that God creates and sets up this nation that's going to be different than any other nation that's around them. But the interesting thing about these tithes, you know, this 10% that belongs to God, it was never really considered to be voluntary giving. It's not like they would take an offering plate and say, you know, whatever you can afford, give today. No, the 10% was required. This is what you owe God. And there are times in their history that the nation of Israel decided probably because of laziness and probably because their hearts were turning away from God, and they felt like giving 10% to God was just a little too steep. And giving all these sacrifices and these animals, animals are expensive. Uh, instead of giving our best to God, I've got a sick animal, he's going to die anyway, we'll use that one. God won't care, he won't even notice. And so, as the nation of Israel did things like this, God disciplined them, and he corrected them, and he warned them, and when they didn't listen, God says, I will exile you out of the land if you do not listen, and when they continued not to listen, God took them very violently out of their land for 70 years. And as the scriptures tell us, then the land had its rest for 70 years, for all the Sabbaths that it had missed, it now had the rest. And later on, in the book of Malachi, some, this is a passage of scripture that some of you are familiar with, 
when the nation of Israel was back in the land, but they still were not giving tithe to create the temple's systems. And so they just kind of did whatever they want. And God accuses them and says, you are robbing me. And they said, well, how have we robbed you, God? He says, because you withhold the tenth part from me. You withhold the tithe. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I can be trusted and I will bless you again. But you need to do your part of the covenant and then I will fulfill my part. And so the tithe becomes part of this covenant system that's very important. But you know, even though it was required, attitude was crucial. See, the very fact that you would bring money and bring it to God wasn't enough. Even in the Old Testament, it was not enough. God wanted their heart, just as he does now. In fact, that's what God always wants. And they may bring animals, and they may bring money, and they may have sacred holidays and feasts and things like that in honor of God. But then in the book of Isaiah... God says this about the people. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. See, even when you have all these rules in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the, the Old Testament about giving, still attitude is important. God wanted it to come from their heart. God is providing them so much free of charge and he's saying, out of gratefulness for what I'm giving you, give back to me and to others. And there are times in the Old Testament that God gets so sick of honoring him with their lips, but not with their hearts. He says, take these offerings away from me. Stop sacrificing to me. I don't want it anymore. I'm sick of it. What I really want is your heart. And so when we look at the Old Testament, this is the history and this is the plan that God had. But you know, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament that just warms my heart so much. And it comes at the end of the life of David. And you can read about it in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and 29. But David is at the end of his life. And Solomon is going to be coming into the kingdom. And so there's this big ceremony, Solomon's there and all his finest and all the leaders from the different clans and tribes are there and David is there and David announces that Solomon's going to be the next king and now here's something you need to know. David always had this passion. He says, Lord, I want to build a house for you, a temple for you. Now, David understood that God cannot live in a temple. The, the whole world itself is not large enough to hold God. So how does God dwell in a temple? He cannot. But the intent is that this will be a place that will remind the nation of Israel to keep coming back to God, a place to meet God. And so God, God said, David, you cannot build this temple. I refuse to let you do it. Now, 
God had used David in many ways. God had used David to free the nation of Israel from their enemies. And he, you know, the Old Testament is full of those exploits of war, starting with the story of David and Goliath and going on all the way through very amazing stories. As a boy, I love reading those stories. I mean, those are the action stories of the Old Testament. But David was a man who had blood on his hands. It, it, you know, he was following God's direction. He made very sure that he didn't do anything that God did not command, but he still had blood on his hands. So God promised that, David, you cannot build it, but your son Solomon will build the temple in honor of my name. So David did the next best thing. David started collecting money, David drew up the plans that Solomon used to build the temple. And so on that day when there's this big ceremony, you can imagine uh, David coming with all these scrolls and handing them to Solomon and say, here are the plans. This is what you have to build. And then David announces that out of all the royal treasuries, all the finances, the gold, the silver, the, the, the precious stones, all the kinds of wood and metal that are needed have already been dedicated towards the building of this temple. Solomon's got the money. He's got the plans. All he has to do now is build the thing, which is an amazing thing. But what happens next is even more amazing. So after all this money is pledged, it says that David stands up before everybody else and he says this, I am now going to clean out my bank account. I'm going to take all of my personal finances and I'm going to donate it as an extra on top of the project. And the Bible tells us that he had like 100 tons of gold and about 250 tons of silver. We're talking about massive amounts of wealth. And De David dedicates it all on top of everything. And then he says this to all the leaders of the clans and tribes around him. He says, now, you guys here, all you leaders, who's going to follow my example? And he throws this challenge to everybody. And I can imagine all the clans being there and kind of looking at each other and thinking, oh my goodness. And I imagine the clan of Benjamin stands up and he says we're going to dedicate 10 tons of gold and 20 tons of silver to this project and I imagine then Judah stands up and says you fellas from Benjamin don't think you're going to outdo us we are going to show you and we're going to dedicate 20 tons of gold and 40 tons of of silver and and this kind of competition goes on and, I, and kind of made that last part up but it would make a good movie as long as they had a better accent but this competition so, sort of comes up between them David challenges them he says I'm giving all that I have to this great project what are you going to give and in the end the the leaders of the 12 tribes come up with twice as much money as David pledged. And all of this went in to the building of the temple 
and of the courtyards and the terraces and the magnificent things and looking after the poor and looking after the needy and providing justice in their society. And once that is all done, David in front of everyone else prays this prayer. He says, who am I and who are my people that we could give you anything? Everything we have comes from you. And we give only what you first gave us. We are here for only a moment. Visitors and strangers in a land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow. Gone so soon without a trace. See, David at the end of his life realized how short life is. And he knows that even though he has many loved ones, it's not going to be many years after he's dead that there's going to be very little trace of him left. And he wants to make sure he's leaving a lasting impact for generations to come, that they will come to a temple. They will come to a place, not to think about the great things that David did, but so that they can be drawn to God. It's an amazing story, one that, that just helps me reflect on that passion and that desire that, he, that David knew that while his life was short, he wanted to leave something that was impactful, changing people's lives, doing things so that generations to follow would have a place to come to. You know, as I listen to the stories that took place 20 years or so ago, in the building of our church here and people sacrificing so that we many of us had nothing to do with the building of our church here but we are here benefiting from what they sacrificed a place to come and worship a place to have ministries doing all the amazing things with our children with our youth with with our our community many of them first generation immigrants those things are all possible because of sacrifices that somebody else made. And though their lives are short, they're leaving a lasting impact. So, so now as we move to the New Testament, we have a real change of scenery happening. Now, you have to understand that probably in the first 20 years or so of of the church and the church begins with the death of Christ so the first 20 or so years after Jesus died rose again and ascended to heaven almost every believer came from the nation of Israel in fact to be Christian was sort of synonymous with being Jewish Jewish and Christian there were those who were Jewish, but there were those who were Jewish and Christian. And that's basically the only two categories. But then something happened. God sent persecution to the church. And you read the stories early in the book of Acts. At the martyrdom of Stephen. And all of a sudden, uh, the Christian church started dispersing. People who are afraid for their lives, rather than stay and be martyred, 
they decided to flee to other parts of the world, taking their message of the gospel with them. And so the gospel started spreading out. But something very unusual happened. Now, people who were pagans began putting their faith in Jesus. Now, up to now, if you were a Jewish Christian, you understood all the Old Testament stories. You understood the Old Testament covenant, the giving structure. You understood the kinds of laws that were there and probably amalgamated some of those with your faith. And we read in the book of Acts some amazing church conflicts over history. Well, we always used to do it this way. This is the way our giving went. This is the way the things that we used to eat. These are the things we could wear. These are the kinds of people that we used to belong to. But now the unclean masses were coming into the church. And they had no history. They had no understanding of what was there. And the church was changing. And the church needed to be taught what to do. And they needed to be taught what's the difference between the Old Testament law and what has happened in our lives since Jesus came. And all throughout the New Testament, that was the flashpoint theology. What do we do with the Old Testament covenant now that Jesus has come? And when it comes to giving, there's certain themes that come up in New Testament giving. Themes like give freely and generously. That's so important. It's not about what you must give, but give it freely. Give out of gratefulness and love. And the picture is that all that God has done in our lives should now live out in the way we treat others, the way we give to others in need, the way we support ministries. Give to meet those needs of others because there's so many people that don't have enough. Give to support ministries. And Paul and different missionaries were going about trying to spread the gospel and they needed to be supported. And give to combat materialism. And this is a very real reason why it's important for us to give. Now, Paul had a pet project. And it actually didn't start with Paul. But we could call it Paul's Famine Relief Project. Now, if you remember much from the life of Paul, he was part of the persecutors. He had an amazing transformation and a conversion. Then he was sent off to the far reaches of the world to get to know Christ and understand his message. Then Barnabas went out looking for him. And called him back and brought him in to Antioch. And used him. And that was, you could say, uh, Paul's first mission point was at Antioch. Now when Paul was at Antioch, one of the people who got spread out through uh, the persecution was a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus has this prophecy. He says, in a few years, there's going to be this horrible famine that's going to begin in Jerusalem, and it's going to spread through all of the known world. And something amazing happens there in Antioch. Now, in Antioch, you have to remember, a lot of Gentile believers, a lot of people who are unjust, 
clean. They've lived all their lives being looked down upon by the Jewish people. Ugh, we cannot touch you. We cannot go into your home. We cannot be anywhere near you. We cannot eat any of your food because you touched it. Because we are different than all the other nations. So they experienced a tremendous amount of, you could say, racism. But something stirred in the heart of these believers in Antioch where they said, there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. We need to help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Yes, they looked down on us for years. Yes, they still look down on us in a lot of ways. We still battle over a lot of things. But because Christ has done so much in our life, we need to help them. And, and Paul describes it this way at the end of the book of Romans. He says, they kind of owed it to the believers in Jerusalem because all the blessings that came through the Jews is now spread to all the nations. And now it's right that their blessings might flow back to those people. That's the way Paul kind of worked it out in his own mind. And so that's where this project began. And so the church in Antioch started collecting money. And then it started spreading to other churches and other places. And Gentiles all over the world started collecting money for their Jewish brothers and sisters. Not just because they cared for someone in need, but they wanted to break that racial barrier and show love beyond, so that love to people who once hated them. So, when Paul is in areas of Athens and Corinth and Macedonia, quite far away, the churches there have caught the bug. We too want to give. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and, and 9, you can read all about it. And Paul talks about giving to those who formerly hated you. And, and there's an interesting thing that comes up in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I just want to, uh, to read it for you because he talks about these believers in Macedonia who were already giving. He says, and he says this about them. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing uh, joy resulted... Oh, excuse me. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. They were in trouble. They were facing persecution themselves. They were struggling. They did not have enough even on their own. And it says here that in spite of that, they responded in rich generosity. And he says, For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability at times, entirely on their own. And here's an interesting thing. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. I can't remember the last time someone pled for the opportunity to share what they had with me. Have you ever had that happen? <laughs> to tell you the truth, I don't think I've ever pled for that responsibility myself, for that joy. Please let me give to you. Oh, come on. I just, I need to give. Please, can I give something to you? To tell you the truth, my heart isn't quite like that. But these believers, in the midst of their trial, they wanted to give because it produced some deep 
joy in their life. They exceeded all expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. And they, not only did they give their finances, but they gave themselves to God. They gave themselves to the believers. We talked about Romans chapter 15 where they recognized the blessings that they had. Not only blessings that God gave them, but the blessings that came from other people. They were giving while they still had needs. Yes, there was needs in Jerusalem, but there was needs right there. In fact, many of them had needs. But it did not stop them from wanting to give to someone else. And they gave to stretch their own faith. Because in their giving, not only did they give their finances, but they kept giving themselves to God. And it's amazing the connection between what we do with our money and how we grow in our faith. Those things are very closely related because the money is often the thing that we cherish the most. I mean, we work hard for it. We scrape for it. We try to have enough. We try to support our families. We try to pay our taxes. We try to support all kinds of things. Our money is precious, and we want to use it wisely. But what happens with our money happens with our heart. In fact, the things that we value are the things where we channel our money to. Jesus put it this way. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And if you treasure your finances, that's where your heart's going to be. If you treasure the security that comes from having a nest egg, that's where your heart is. If you treasure things like, I want to see people come to know Christ, that's where your heart is going to be, and that's where your money is going to flow. See, there's that connection between what we do with our finances and where our faith is, where our values are. So, whether you believe in a tithe or whether you just believe in, I want to give freely and generously and as much as possible. Either one is fabulous. I, I, I mean, as a pastor, I love it when people say, I believe in tithing to the church. Oh, that really helps us. And I have to admit, it really does help us because the kind of ministries that we have going on here are very expensive. But it also warms my heart when people say, I don't believe in tithing, you know, the Old Testament tithing, because it's not demanded. But I believe in giving and blessing other people the way God blesses me. Either one is great because it's about our heart. Because do I want to bless others the way God has blessed me? Do I want to be as generous with people as God is with me? You know, there's this story that Jesus told. We call it the story of the unmerciful servant. I, th I think many of you are familiar with it. And it's one of these crazy outlandish stories that Jesus tells. And he tells it in an extreme way. And if we would put it in today's dollars, basically it's this. A king is settling up his accounts, and uh, a man comes before him that owes a billion dollars. Can you imagine owing a billion? No private citizen does. But he owes a billion dollars. 
And the king, and he comes to the king and says, just give me more time. Be merciful, and I will pay it off. And normally, and we mentioned this last week, when you owe and you can't pay, then you get sent to work camp, and you have to pay it off. It's not like you're excused. You have to work it off. But in mercy, the king says, I'm going to forgive your debt. <laughs> Amazing. And it's an extreme story. And it's meant to be an extreme story. But then that man, that unmerciful servant, now that his load is lighter, all that money I don't have to pay back. Wow. He meets a friend who owes him 50 bucks. And he says, you know that 50 bucks? Pay it up now. And the man gets down on his knees and says, just give me time and I'll pay back. But the unmerciful servant says, no, pay it back now or I'm sending you to work camp and you have to pay it off there. So when servants of the king saw what had happened, that that man was treated so generously, but that generosity did not flow to others, that servant was brought back in before the king and he was chastised and he was taken and sent to prison to work camp himself because he had not shown the grace that had been shown him. And you know, these are one of those stories that keep me awake at night because every one of us is that servant who owed a billion dollars. I, I mean, that's where we are meant to fit in the story. And the forgiveness and the grace that has shown us is so extravagant by a loving God. And then he calls us to show that same kind of grace and forgiveness and generosity to those around us. And as C.S. Lewis said, if we would dedicate our life to that kind of generosity and that kind of service of others, we could not give God enough and we could not give him anything that he didn't already own. So as you sort through, do you believe in tithing or not? That becomes your choice and your thing that you have to work out. But like David and like Paul with his relief project, We've got a project that we want to encourage you to give towards. Next week is Mission Sunday. How fortuitous that this all works together, right? You know, on Mission Sunday is a Sunday that we want to focus on raising finances that are not about us. It's not for our personal benefit. They're not going to be used here in the church we want them to bless missionaries and missions around the world and give so that they can do their work. That's what next Sunday is about. And um, we've got a project that comes from, from Brazil. It's called Chain of Life. Love. Thank you. Oh, as I had that mind blank there, I go, wait a minute, that's not right. Chain of Love. Should follow my notes more, shouldn't I? 
At least I didn't put my name in there. Chain of Love, which is a, is a housing ministry for foster kids and kids who live on the street, and is an amazing uh, ministry, and a number of our people were down there this past year. They're going to show some, share some of their story with us. So Chain of Love is our main focus next week. But you know, our commitment to missions goes far beyond what we want to do with Chain of Love. I, I mean, we want to write a nice fat check for Chain of Love to help them do their work. But you know, every year we as a membership get together and we decide how much money are we going to dedicate to missions this year. And every penny of this we need to raise because we don't get any financing from governments. We don't get any grants. We don't get anyone giving us money except we rely on our members to do that. And so if you take a look at what we want to do with Chain of Love and all our other missions that we want to do this year, it adds up to about $85,000. And that's what we have sought is that is our role. That's our responsibility. That's what we want to do out of love that goes out from our church to bless other missionaries and missions. Now, I'd love for us to raise $85,000 next week. I mean, I love that. But you know, it's a faith goal that we set. And I would love to raise as much of that as possible next Sunday. In fact, our ladies' ministry, our women's ministries, are so committed to that, they are going to put on not just a luncheon, they're going to put on a banquet next week. I'm trying to talk this up, so now our expectations are going up a little bit, right? And the reason why they're doing this is because they want to encourage you to give just a little bit more. They're going through the effort, and they're hoping we will notice the effort, and we will get on board with them. And to tell you the truth, a lot of our mission's emphasis in our church is spearheaded through our women's ministries, and we want to support them in their efforts. So I encourage you this week to pray about a thank offering and say, Lord, you've been very generous and very good to me. What can I afford to give to others? And, and, and with Chain of Love, I, I mean, it goes to a, such a worthy cause. And all of our missions and missionaries are all very worthy causes that depend on giving in order to do what they need to do. And in that way, we follow a long tradition, starting in the Old Testament, following through Paul in the New Testament, and that comes upon our shoulders. How do we want to leave a legacy that's far beyond what we can do? Because our lives are short. Our lives will disappear like a mist. But the impact of God's word will stay. So pray about that this week. Let's close. Heavenly Father, on this day of giving thanks, we thank you most of all for the love of Jesus. We thank you that your grace reached out to us, that he who was rich became poor for our sakes so that we could become rich and then enrich other people's lives.
Father, there's no way we can thank you enough. Father, I pray that our thanks will live out in our lives in all we say and in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray.